Hello, and welcome to another episode of This Week in Hearing. I'm Brian Taylor. And this week, our topic is adults with normal audiograms and self-reported hearing difficulty. And here to discuss this important topic is Professor Christina Roop from The Ohio State University. Welcome to This Week in Hearing, Christina. It's great to have you with us. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, well, this is kind of a burning topic for a lot of clinicians out there. I know that, uh, you know, in my travels, I talk to a lot of uh, audiologists that run into these patients that have normal audiograms and report difficulty. Uh, but before we uh, dive into the topic, I thought it would be helpful if you could tell everybody a little bit about your background and what interest, what got you interested in this topic. Well, sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking. So, um, as you mentioned, I'm currently a faculty member at The Ohio State University. I've been there since uh, 2004 and uh, have been a, a teacher in the classroom with graduate students and undergrads, but I also have my own research lab where I study um, primarily age-related changes in speech understanding, but that has evolved into changes in speech perception, speech understanding, speech and noise problems in adults who have normal pure tone thresholds or thresholds that are within this normal range. Prior to that, I spent six years in the Department of Veterans Affairs, where I was a research and a clinical audiologist there. Well, uh, it's great to have you on our, uh, our episode devoted to this topic. And uh, my first question is really um, maybe more about semantics, but uh, could you describe the condition? I know it goes by a lot of different names. And in addition to maybe talking about some of the different names, if you could explain some of the theories around what's happening on the auditory system. Sure. You're absolutely right. The more you dive into this topic, the more you learn how many different names it goes by. So, you know, probably the most common name that we hear is either central auditory processing disorder or auditory processing disorder. But you know, people do get, there's a little controversy surrounding the term disorder, right? So other terms have been used. One of the more recent is hearing difficulties. That was um, coined by Kelly Tremblay, looking at the data from the Beaver Dam um, Epidemiology of Hearing Loss Study. Um, this was first described, this concept of normal pure tone hearing thresholds and speech and noise problems way back in the 1940s. And so that description was later termed King-Kapetsky syndrome. So that's one term. Um, obscure auditory dysfunction is another term. Um, uh, I use the term hearing difficulties or auditory processing deficits. Those are two terms that I typically use. Um, so there's a whole host of terms. Central presbycusis is another you can tell I can go on forever with yeah, no. terms, right? Um, but uh, getting to the second part of your question, what do we think is actually happening with these individuals, right? So I think um, there are a number of different um, things that have been demonstrated in the research to help explain these symptoms. Aging is one of them. So we see these symptoms where we have middle-aged and older adult listeners who have hearing within the normal limits that are um, presenting with these symptoms, suprathrational deficits or speech and noise deficits. Um, the middle-aged uh, population is one that I find super interesting because there's not a lot of literature. 
in this area, right? And that these are people who are presenting in the clinic. And Karen Helfer has a series of articles looking at middle-aged listeners and their auditory functioning. So if anyone's interested, that's a great line of research. Um, the other thing that we're beginning to see is the importance of extended high-frequency hearing, right? So thresholds above 8 kilohertz. So thresholds at 10 through 20 kilohertz are, are we're learning that they have a lot more importance to our super threshold hearing abilities than we ever thought before. So we're seeing that um, extended high frequency hearing is uh, related to speech and noise performance. There was a great study that came out of the National Acoustics Laboratories in Australia by Ingrid Yeand. She published a study in 2019 with colleagues that showed that extended high-frequency hearing was a significant predictor of speech to noise performance. And she's not the only one to have shown that. Um, so we see that extended high-frequency hearing, which doesn't get really, that as far as I'm aware, it doesn't get measured routinely in the clinic, can be a predictor. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Yeah. The other one that I'm sure you've heard a lot about is hidden hearing loss or cochlear synaptopathy. So that is a definite um, physiologic change that's happening due to noise exposure at the level of the synapse between the um, cells and the auditory nerve fiber. So the folks at Mass, uh, Massachusetts, so Charlie Lieberman and Karen um, Kajawa have shown that that those symptoms that we're talking about can be due to noise exposure. And then finally, the other group that I think that we're seeing this really um, prevalent in is those folks with a history of traumatic brain injury. So adults who've had mild or greater severity of head injury are presenting with these symptoms as well. So those are some mechanisms that have been shown to um, help explain these symptoms, but I think we're going to learn more as time goes on. Well, that's a really good overview. Thank you for that. Uh, I think what a lot of our listeners are probably uh, really interested in is um, some of the ways that this condition might show up in the clinic, uh, maybe how patients describe it uh, to their audiologist. So could you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. Um, I think uh, the primary complaint that we see, and these are people who are presenting with help-seeking behaviors. They're showing up in your clinic and they're presenting with um, complaints or symptoms that are consistent with the hearing loss. So it would be like your patient who presents with your um, garden variety sensory neural hearing loss, but then you do your standard audiometric battery and they don't have that hearing loss, right? They don't have threshold elevation beyond that normal range. So difficulty understanding in really noisy environments, those really acoustically complex environments with multiple talkers. Um, yeah, I think just that extreme difficulty understanding the noise and when their attention is being pulled in multiple directions. That's when they have difficulty. Makes sense. Uh, can I just add one more thing? Yeah, please. I so one of the, so uh, my primary role is in the research lab at our clinic at Ohio State. And one of my research participants who has this condition, is she is fascinating to me. One of, she has perfectly beautiful pure tone thresholds within that normal range, but she describes herself as being deaf when she's in noise. 
And I think that is a really powerful statement, right? That her perception of her hearing ability is vastly different than what we would predict, right? So I find that uh, to be one of the most powerful statements I've heard from a patient. That's a great example. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the prevalence of this condition. I've seen various numbers thrown out there around how common this condition is. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, what I've seen in the literature is some estimates in young to middle-aged adults ranging from about 12 to 15 percent of uh, young to middle-aged adults who would present with these types of complaints. So Chris Spankovic um, published a study based on the NHANES data in 2018. Kelly Tremblay's data from the Beaver Dam study um, suggests anywhere from 12 to 15 percent. That prevalence estimate goes up when you go into older age groups. So, um, you know, you can get up into the 60s and 70 age range with the adults still having good pure tone thresholds, but their complaints about their hearing is much more prevalent. In um, folks or adults with a history of traumatic brain injury, it can be as high as 50 to 60% of those individuals. We see this in the VA population. So veterans with a history of blast exposure um, have these types of complaints as well. Interestingly, there's a, set, there's a paper from Douglas Beck and Jeffrey Danhauer from 2019, and they suggest upwards of 26 million adults present with these types of complaints. So it's very common. It's not a... Go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's not a trivial... Um, you know, the numbers of individuals that present with these complaints is not trivial. Right. And I think yeah. clinicians all around the country um, have patients coming into their clinic on a weekly, right. if not daily basis, that might have fallen into this category. So good to know. Mm -hmm. I think uh, we've already kind of alluded to is that the traditional audiogram is not a very effective way to assess this condition. You already mentioned extended high frequency audiometry. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think a lot of clinicians probably don't have that. Uh, what are some other tools that clinicians can use to identify this condition? Yeah, I am a firm believer in the use of subjective questionnaires. So standardized questionnaires, we have a lot of them that have been normed and um, have a lot of really good reliability in clinical audiology from the hearing handicap inventory to the COSI, um, the abbreviated profile of hearing aid benefit. Um, there's a lot of them out there. So, um, or patient related outcome measures that can help you quantify what your patient is complaining about or the symptoms that they're expressing. So that quantification, I think, is really powerful. Um, we have a ton of super threshold measures at our, um, that are available to us as clinicians as well. So super threshold tests like speech and noise super quick and easy with something like the Quixin or the words and noise test um, or the listen that I use in um, my research as well. So they're easy to implement. Uh, they're easy to score. They don't take a ton of time. So I think speech and noise is something that should be a routine part of our battery. I would also shout out dichotic listening. That That is one test that routinely will show abnormalities in this population. And then if you're interested in non-speech measures, the gaps and noise tests will tap into temporal processing that can be um, driving some of these issues as well. 
Well, it sounds like you're probably using some of those uh, tests in your research. And that's the next area that I want to kind of talk about with you. And that is um, one study that really, I think, piqued my curiosity around your research was one you published uh, in 2021, I think it was, in the Ash, one of the Ash journals, where you looked at more middle-aged, younger and middle-aged adults. Uh, could you walk us through the study that I'm referring to and uh, maybe tell us about some of the questions you were trying to address with your research? Yeah, so we're really interested in this connection between self-perception of hearing ability and actual super thresholds, auditory abilities. So how do those two connect, right? Because we would typically expect that if someone walked into your clinic who had normal thresholds or even sensory neural hearing loss, that their self-perception would align with that and then the test measures that you did. So if you did speech and noise or dichotic listening, you would expect all those um, those three components to agree with each other, right? But we end up with people who their self-perception and their uh, speech and noise abilities don't align with their pure tone thresholds. So that's kind of where this came from, right? So we have this group of um normal hearing listeners. So the, these were 18 to 67 years of age. We had over 60 participants and we were really interested in if you have normal hearing through 8,000 hertz or within that traditional 25 dBHL cutoff range, is there a relationship between speech and noise performance and your self-perception of your hearing ability? And so that was our primary research question. We hypothesized that even within that range, because zero to 25 is our normal hearing range, but that's a wide range of thresholds, right? That we would expect to see some variability in both their perception and their speech and noise performance. And so that's exactly what we found. We found that their self-perception, so those with who felt that they did worse or had greater self-perceived hearing difficulties, actually performed worse on our speech and noise measure. Speaking of, I noticed that you didn't use the quicksand or the hint, or maybe you did, but um, the, the primary measure that you used for speech and noise testing was the listen S. Um, yes. Tell us more about that test and why did you choose that one? Yeah, so the listen S is uh, the listening and spatialized noise test, and it uses sentences, so that's the extra S on the end. It was developed by Harvey Dillon and Sharon Cameron down at National Acoustics Laboratories in Australia. And one of the reasons I like it is it's, it's a computer-based program. So you have it loaded up on your computer and it presents the stimuli through headphones, but it uses binaural hearing. And that's one of the um, primary metrics that I use in my research program is tapping into binaural processing. So you present uh, sentences in a background noise, and sometimes those sentences are co-located with the noise, and then sometimes the sentences are spatially separated from the noise. So you get a metric of binaural hearing, specifically spatial hearing. And so, and it's easy to implement. It's it's automatically scored. It adjusts the signal to noise ratio. So I think you get a lot of really great information from this test in a relatively quick um, and easy to administer test. And for those interested in it, it's L I S N dash S, right? 
Right. Um, where can people find the test? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I thought you might ask me that. Um, so it used to be um, distributed by Phonak in the U.S., but that's not long, no longer the case. So now you can get it on a website called Sound Scouts, and that's soundscouts.com. And so you can um, get the Listen S there. They also have a version called the Listen U. Um, so it's L-I-S-N-U. It's called the Universal Test. So it uses phonemes instead of sentences. So it's not, it, it's less language based. So there's some, I haven't used that version of the test myself, but that is out there for it. So say you have someone whose primary language is in English, you might not want to use an English based speech and voice test. You could use something like this. You just, it's done under headphones, I'm assuming. Correct. It's done under headphones. So how do you get spatial hearing under headphones? So they use non-individualized head-related transfer functions to be able to generate that spatial separation. Interesting. Well, yeah. for, for those that are out there, they go to the soundscouts.com and they can uh, find the test. It's good yes. to know. Uh, I wanted to turn away from uh, identification and look more at treatment. And I know back a few years ago, you published a study on the use of mild gain hearing aids for adults that were in this category, people with normal audiograms and self-reported hearing difficulty. Could you tell us about that study and what you found? Right. Yeah. Thanks for asking. So that was a study we published in 2018. So we looked at adults who have com their primary complaint is difficulty understanding speech and noise. And we recruited them to this trial. So we put them in um, um, digital hearing aids. Uh, they were open dome receiver and the canal hearing aids. Um, and they we had directionality, adaptive directionality engaged, and we, we had noise reduction engaged. And we applied what we referred to as mild gain. So it was amplification um, gain of about 5 to 10 dB from 1,000 to 4,000 hertz. And we ensured that we didn't have... Um, we weren't exceeding tolerance or maximum output was controlled as well. We did have an inclusion criteria for these individuals. We used the hearing handicap inventory, so they had to score at least 20 on that. So that was our quantification of those complaints. Um, they wore the hearing aids. We asked them to wear the hearing aids about four hours a day for four weeks. And then we had them come back and we did speech and noise testing and um, I was very pleased to see that we saw significant improvements in speech and noise performance with the hearing aids relative to without. The hearing aids were really well tolerated by the listeners. Uh, so that was for majority of the listeners. We had a few who didn't like them. So I would say that mild gain amplification isn't going to be uh, a universal treatment option, right? But the majority of participants uh, really tolerated the hearing aids well. And we had um, we had three of our 17 who completed the trial go on to purchase the hearing aids. Um, so I felt really good about that, that this was something that even, you know, they got to wear the hearing aids for free during the trial, but if they wanted them post-trial, they had to purchase them and they did. So, um, I felt like that was a, a good outcome. 
yeah, it's one of a few studies now that show that you can successfully fit amplification on this population. So it's uh, it's good to to see the evidence that that works. Yes. Yeah, we based. I'll I'll give a shout out to Francis Cook. He published a study back in 2008 where he did this with children with auditory processing deficits, and then. We did it with adults, and there was another study out of Syracuse University singing Doherty published a trial with middle-aged adults, and they saw similar results to ours. Thanks for that. My final question for you, Christina, is this. Uh, uh, based on your, on your experience, uh, based on your uh, research in this area, um, how would you advise clinicians who are working with this population? What would, what would you ask? What would you suggest that they do today? Yeah, that's a great question. I really appreciate that. You know, you know, our research is trying to spread this message that um, I think first and foremost, encouraging clinicians to really just listen to their patients. So if you have a patient who comes in, who presents with these types of complaints, a lot of difficulty understanding speech and noise when there's multiple talkers, et cetera, to give those symptoms weight, right? So when they present with pure tone thresholds in this normal range, you don't dismiss them with a diagnosis of normal hearing because threshold detection and how we function in our own environment are two very different things, right? You're nodding, so you get that. Um, and then, yeah, throw in that speech and noise test. Make it a routine part of your uh, clinical test battery because that is going to give you uh, information that can help verify the patient's symptoms, right? I've heard way too many stories of patients who have seen multiple audiologists before they find one who will listen to their complaints and provide them with some treatment options. And it just, it's a little heartbreaking to realize that they're they're in your clinic for a reason, right? They're not there because they want hearing aids. They don't want a hearing loss, but that they have... They ha they're experiencing these problems. Something real going on, right? That brought yeah. The office. Exactly. exactly. Well, that's yeah. really good advice, I think. Uh, and it's a great example of how research like yours can inform clinical practice. So um, hopefully clinicians will uh, uh, follow some of your advice, uh, look at what some of the research you've done in this area, how it can better inform them when they take care of their own patients. And oh, by the way, um, for the listeners out there on the in the show notes, we'll have uh, links to as many articles as we can uh, find that we referenced that Christina referenced today. So uh, if anyone wants to dig a little deeper, uh, we'll have those listed in the show notes. So Dr. Christina Roop, uh, thank you for uh, spending some time with us. Hope things are well in uh, Columbus. 